I should start by saying I am not a historian. I don't feel comfortable identifying as a historian because I, I don't, I didn't train as a historian. I trained as a studio designer. I started because of teaching, becoming really interested in the way that students make connections between history, the subject of history and their studio practices. And I became interested in that in the field as well. And I started uh, reading really intensely about how history is shaped and what designers do when they refer to history. I'm kind of at the, at the beginning of a new chapter in my career where I'm hoping to be uh, more active in these conversations as a researcher. But I'm, I'm very interested in the way history should evolve, and both in terms of what history is and then how that bears on practice. Eggie Tompins is an associate professor and chair of undergraduate communication design at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts at Washington University in St. Louis. Previously, Toppins taught at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where, for two years, she served as the first female department head in art. Through her studio practice and scholarship, Toppins explores design as a discourse of power. She is interested in social justice, critical histories, and their intersections with the studio practice. She received her MFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art in 2012 and her BS in Graphic Design from the University of Cincinnati College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning in 2003. She has recently moved to St. Louis with her husband Jason and their silly dog, Ian. So welcome back to another episode of Design Dedux. I am your guest host for this season, Mandy Horton. Um, and of course, I'm here with your regular host, Pete Bella. And we are joined today by Aggie Toppins. So I'm going to let Pete go ahead and start us. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Hello, Aggie. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Hey, really quick before we get into all the discussion on um, redesigning her story and the discussion on women in graphic design, mm -hmm. uh, we'd love to hear a little background on yourself and how you got into design, design teaching, even like design history uh, for that matter. Sure. Well, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I was raised by my mother and um, with some help from my grandparents and my, my aunt. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I went to the University of Cincinnati, uh, College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning, which we refer to as DAP. And okay. at the time, I, I learned about graphic design uh, from a, a friend at church who um, worked for a company in Columbus called Fitch at the time. This is the mid-90s when I was a teenager. That sounds really familiar. Yeah, Fitch was uh, like a big deal for a while. And um, I don't know, I guess they got bought out or something. But uh, I, I visited her at work and was really uh, amazed at her job because I grew up in a low-income family and, and my, my mother was a diet clerk at a hospital and my grandmother washed dishes in a hospital. My grandfather worked at a plastic factory so the thought that I could draw pictures and set type for a living was like thrilling. <laughs> um, and I thought, yeah, I think this is what I want to do. I was always uh, like an artistic kid, but I was also a really good student. I really liked to read. I liked to study languages. So I thought maybe this was the right blend of skills for me. That said, I didn't really know what graphic design was until I started studying it. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of students. You know, it, it, the field is so rich and broad and has so many facets and, it's a lot more than uh, packaging and, and logos and stuff. But right. I, I went to uh, DAP, and that was, a, at the time, a very modernist program. Uh, I studied with almost all of my professors were men, and they were older men who maybe at that time were in their uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, they had studied at Yale with Paul Rand or um, 
in, in the, the school at Basel with Armin Hoffman. This is a very like Swiss-oriented modernist uh, school of thought. Uh, so I did I did that for you know I, I graduated in two thousand three, and it was a five year program. I I had some internships in in college that really helped shape my professional um, preparation, I guess. And I worked for the first two years in Cincinnati at an environmental graphic design firm right after I graduated. But I really wanted to live in a bigger city and I was more interested in like what we would call traditional graphic design now, um, working with text and image. And so I, I moved to Chicago and I worked for a company called SGDP, which is now called uh, Simple Truth Communication Partners. And I loved working there. It was uh, really exciting to be part of Chicago. And I was 25 when I moved to Chicago. And um, I loved being part of the AIGA in Chicago. It has a really active chapter. And I learned a lot uh, in, the, in the five years I lived there and worked there. I, I learned a lot. Uh, I had really cool clients. I worked for the Chicago History Museum. I worked with Morris Animal Foundation, which is a veterinary research nonprofit and Betty White sits on their board. So I kept like taking delight in the fact that Betty White might've been looking at my work. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> sort of funny. Yeah. But that, you know, that was a, like the, I still did a lot of print work, like annual reports and stuff like that. And I did designed a lot of public service campaigns and that was really great for a while. I learned a lot. I became a senior designer. And then uh, not long after that is when the major recession hit of 2008, 2009. I was, you know, in my late 20s and I thought, oh, um, this, what am I going to do with my career now that I know that this is a possibility? I, I, did, I was fortunate that I didn't lose my job at that time. Like a lot of people lost uh, their jobs and creative work kind of dried up for a while. And, you know, the things I got to do were I was still uh, working, but I was I was really like, I don't know, affected by the possibility that your job is so precarious in the industry. And I was also getting kind of, um, well, bored. I was getting kind of bored with the industry. And um, at the time, I was also mentoring students in, uh, through the AIGA. I was working with college students on their portfolios um, as they were um, entering the profession. And I took a lot of joy in that for some reason. Even like when I had to get up early on Saturdays, I was like, oh, I was really energized by working with these students. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I want to teach. I don't know. Um, but I definitely felt like it was time to go to grad school. I, was, I wanted more skills. I wanted to you know, sort of re-engage with design ideas, and I wanted to make exciting work. So uh, I decided I was going to go to grad school, and I cast my net and started, you know, having, a, I had a few acceptances, and just a couple weeks, you know, into that process, my boyfriend at the time asked me to marry him. I was like, oh, everything's happening at once. So, <laughs> so I, I got married, and two weeks later, we moved to Baltimore. And uh, I went to graduate school at MICA. And at MICA, MICA was wonderful. I, I loved, loved, loved MICA. Um, I worked with really wonderful women there. I worked, Brockett uh, Horn was my, one of my professors and, and my first uh, like academic boss. And she remains a mentor and a trusted friend. And I worked with Keetra Dean Dixon at that time, who I deeply respect. And of course, Jennifer Cole Phillips and Ellen Lupton, who um, chair the MFA program, who are, uh, are the directors of that program, both um, just really phenomenal women. Uh, I learned so much in grad school, I could go on and on about that, but it was a time in my life where um, I, I was learning skills that I didn't have because uh, the program I went to for undergrad really didn't emphasize manufacturing and actual making. It was more about 
design process and planning, a very modernist uh, way of thinking. So I, uh, I learned uh, to letterpress print. I worked with the amazing Bob Cicero of the Globe at MICA, and I uh, learned to silkscreen, but I also learned to write code and uh, think in motion, things that we just didn't do at, at DAP at the time. And then I, um, I also uh, started reading critical theory, which has been uh, really important to me in my practice and my research. I had never read uh, philosophy before and found it so practical and so actionable. And I continue to be a voracious uh, f philosophy reader. That's a huge part of my, my thinking. I, uh, I had really great opportunities in grad school, but between my first and second year, I went to uh, an internship at IDO and I learned a lot about methods there. And I learned a ton about process and methods in, in throughout grad school. But I knew uh, through that opportunity that that was not going to be the career for me. I just didn't want to do that. But right after that, I had my first opportunity to teach, thanks to Brockett. And um, when, I, when I started teaching at MICA during my second year of grad school, God, I felt like I found like my calling or something. I just loved it so much. I found the students were so energizing. I was, I was on cloud nine after every class. I just felt like we were having exciting conversations. The students worked hard. They made cool things. They were so interesting. Yeah. And I've never really lost my, my interest in students. The students are, I mean, they're just so fascinating. Everyone's their own world. They bring a wealth of knowledge to the classroom. And that's my favorite thing. I love that so much. And, and it, I realized that's what teaching really was um, when, I, when I was at MICA. I had great teachers at MICA. And um, I think Brockett Horton is like the greatest teacher I've ever met. She's, I think about her influence all the time. She was very um, focused on the student and bringing out the best in the student. And my undergraduate teaching was a lot, not like that really. It was more, it, it was more of a patriarchal kind of teaching. <laughs> so right. I learned right. a lot about teaching from, from the women I studied with at MICA. And then, um, so, so after, after grad school, I, I pursued an academic career it just so happened that in 2012, um, there were a lot of tenure track positions at that time, and I was fortunate to have uh, my choice. And so I chose to go to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. I started working there in 2012, and I served uh, at, on that faculty for eight years, and I just left uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm still, um, I'm still like getting over that a little bit because it, it was a big change and it was a bittersweet decision. Right. You but were chair, right? I or was head chair of the, department. the last two years. Yeah. That's right. I, I loved working at UTC and will always speak very highly of the faculty there. Um, the, the Department of Art, I grew so much in the department. I, I, I had a lot of autonomy in the way that I taught. And my colleague, Matt Greenwell, and I, Matt Greenwell is one of my favorite people in the world. He's like a brother to me. We um, redesigned our program together. And everyone in that department is just super smart, super passionate, very committed to the students, and they work so hard, harder than anybody knows. And uh, I was just really honored to be among them for the time I was there. And I also really loved our students. UTC's, I, I, you guys both teach, so I think you can empathize with this probably, but. I just loved how um, generous they were with each other. They were my students at UTC were like this anyway. I don't know if everyone's students are, but I imagine we, we wouldn't teach if we didn't love it, right? So right, right. Um, my students were so generous and so eager and engaged, and it was really a joy and an honor to work with them. The classroom was an exciting place every day. Um, 
the last two years at UTC, I served as the uh, head of the Department of Art, and I, and I was the first woman to hold that position in the Department of Art. It was um, not long after I was tenured. So right after tenure, I was kind of, uh, I walked right into some administrative roles. I was, I was an associate head for one year, and then I became the department head. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it's like at, at your school. Uh, it, it really depends on the school and the structure, what that workload looks like for a chair or head. At UTC, it was a full-time administrative role. And I was excited about serving, excited about learning about myself as a leader and trying to facilitate the kinds of changes we wanted to see in the faculty. And, uh, but it was, a, it was so much more administration than I could imagine <laughs> going in. I don't want to say anything negative about UTC at all, but my priorities as a professor, and I still feel like I'm early in my academic career. I mean, I was tenured and then went right into uh, this role. Right. I, I wanted more time for my research, and I felt like administration at UTC was very demanding to the point that it's, I started to feel like my bandwidth as a teacher was suffering, and I just did not have time for my research. And it was, it was, uh, it was becoming more and more of an issue for me, and then I had an opportunity uh, to, to join the faculty at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts at Washington University in St. Louis, that uh, kind of came came to me uh, this year. I wasn't uh, expecting it, and because the opportunity happened, I mean, I put my hat in the ring, and it it happened. Uh, it was it was an opportunity to think about the next stage in my career, and I'm also the chair uh, of communication design in our program. But it's a very different structure, and it's one that permits um, leaders to have a research agenda. There's a there's a stronger culture of research at WashU because it's a research school, and um, it was very hard to say goodbye to my relationships at UTC and the program I helped build, but um, I felt like it was the right decision. It was time to, to grow somewhere else, and so I'm in the beginning. I, I just moved to St. Louis last weekend, and I'm excited about what's coming. It's a very strange time, of course, to be um, leading institution. Uh, or leading a unit in an institution, uh, COVID nineteen, and right. Um, but I, I feel really excited about um, the support that I'll have at WashU, and the kinds of uh, folks I'm working with are pretty great. Um, and so, uh, well, I guess the, the second part of your question was, how did I get into design history, or maybe that was the third part yeah. of the question. Um, <laughs> And I, I should start by saying I am not a historian. I don't feel comfortable identifying as a historian because I, I don't. I didn't train as a historian. I trained as a, a studio designer. Uh, but I am really engaged with um, the, the critical histories and, and historiography and philosophies of history. So I, uh, I this interest grew out of the classroom, working with students at UTC, and I sense students in many many uh, schools are like this where I just saw them being so um, prone to nostalgic form. They were so interested in, in the forms of yesterday. And I thought, what is behind this? You know, and um, I, I, I searched for critical readings to give to them. And there, I really don't feel like there are very many. I know, Amanda, you're interested in this too. Like, why do we ref reference history? Um, why do we quote history? And, and do students also really understand what history is? I don't right. know. Um, so I, I'm really, I started because of teaching, becoming really interested in the way that students make connections between history, the subject of history and their studio practices. 
And I became interested in that in the field as well. And I started uh, reading really intensely about how history is shaped and what designers do when they refer to history. And in other fields too, like what are concepts of quotation that exist in other fields? And um, began I began to write a little bit about that. And uh, I've been working on this body of knowledge for a while, and I'm just starting to really get my name out there in terms of publications. I've published a few articles recently, and I have a number of things in the works right now, which I suppose we'll talk about later. But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm kind of at the, at the beginning of a new chapter in my career where I'm hoping to be uh, more active in these conversations as a researcher. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in, in the way history should evolve and both in terms of what history is and then how that bears on practice. How, how do we refer to history when we understand history the way we do? Those are the kinds of questions I'm asking. Right. So I think you've actually sort of a little bit answered my next question, which is, um, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the value of graphic design history? Um, mm -hmm. If there's anything else you would like to illuminate there, I'd love to hear it. Um, but then also the second part of that question is, uh, do you think it's problematic that some design programs do not offer um, mm -hmm. instruction in graphic design history? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, well, I want to start by saying that I think historical understanding is a supremely valuable skill because graphic design, like all design fields, is a very futures-oriented discipline. And because graphic design, and maybe I should say visual communication to be a little bit broader, um, you know, everybody in design is thinking about the future. And right. historical understanding is supremely valuable to futures designing. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about why I think that is, but I also think that learning design history doesn't necessarily mean that a student has achieved historical understanding. I think there's a difference between design history and historical understanding because um, the way design history, and, I, and I, I should say history with a capital H, the way I'm referring to it here, be, history with a capital H meaning the whole assemblage of works practices, assumptions, not like individual histories, um, but the, the sort of like uh, the common uh, understanding of capital H graphic design history, you know, that, that kind of came, that kind of came into being in the late seventies through the eighties, even in the nineties, it was still proto-disciplinary what graphic design capital H history is. And um, the motivations that those historians had are very different than the motivations we have today. The, the concerns are different, and history does evolve in the present. It's for the present. Um, so so I, while I think it is essential that graphic designers know history, I don't know if the history we have is what they need to know. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about that maybe. Right. But, um, yeah. So, so, and that sort of answers the, the second question a little bit too. I do think programs should have design history content, but just because a design history course is on the books doesn't mean that the students are coming any closer to historical understanding. There are a lot of traditional and I think outdated methods for teaching history. And at the same time, history can be taught in the context of a studio in a really meaningful way. So it isn't to me a question of so much, do you have the course, but how that course is being taught or how right. that content's being taught. I myself am, have never taught graphic design history. I've worked with my colleagues who have. 
And I'm currently developing my own ideas about curriculum, but that's very nascent at, at, at this point. But I would love the opportunity to teach a pretty different approach to design history. Um, so maybe I'll like elaborate on that a little bit. I, I, I see what graphic design capital H history is right now as a chronicle of taste. It's often a chronicle of taste and it often exalts monuments. And, and what I mean by that are uh, canonical works, canonical figures. Um, I'm far more interested in socially driven histories because, um, again, to go back to the questions that we ask as historians, right? The questions that someone like Philip Meggs would have asked in 1983 was more like, what is graphic design? Uh, it was about defining the field, making it distinct from other disciplines, analogous disciplines like printing or commercial art. It was about elevating graphic design as a cultural practice and a profession. And when that's the motivation, that drives a certain kind of history, likely chronicles, likely legacy histories, likely hero-centric histories. However, um, even as soon as those things came out in the 90s, there was a pretty great uh, response, critical response, questioning those methods, questioning that kind of history from the get-go, but it served a, a purpose at the time. Our questions now, I don't think, are so much about what is graphic design, but what does graphic design do? Right. Uh, why, not, not it looked this way, but why does it look this way? Why does it matter? It's not about the fact that it is, but what it does and, and what it goes on doing. Um, I'm really interested in, in um, this concept within design futures thinking, which is about uh, the idea of ontological design, the idea that design is after we make something, it has consequences, right? Right. So design is, and it goes on being, it goes on doing, even with beyond the will of the, the maker. And, and that's not something that history elucidates. History just, for the most part, talks about forms, and those forms are often out of context, or they're against a social backdrop which seems singular and stable. But contexts are always pluralistic because audiences occupy different worlds, and design is the product of really complex systems like economics, politics, cultures. Everything, is, everything that is designed is designed with vested interests. And histories really should talk about that because that's what students need to learn. If they learn formal mimicry, which is typically what they gain from a, a history like Meg's um, or even an Eskelson, a, a history that is form first, um, what they could be learning is not so much how to make a thing look like that, but why did that thing look like that in response to what? How did that designer take advantage of the technology available to them? How did that designer respond to their time and place? How did audiences read that work and how did it make an impact? What did, how does design bear on society? Those are the questions I think that are more present and relevant right. to the future. And, and those are the questions that design historians need to respond to now in their methods and, and in their telling of history. Let me ask you a quick question, uh, interject here. Mm -hmm. What questions should the students then be walking away with? Because yeah. I, I question myself and my teaching of history graphic design as to um, the approach that, that you're um, mentioning. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly asking the students, um, you know, what will your voice be? What will mm -hmm. your design be? How will you 
direct, not change, but how will you direct graphic design mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. in the history of graphic design? So, I mean, mm-hmm. should they, instead of just being informed, I think they should be walking away with questions. What's your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. And that would prepare them, I think, to think in a more scholarly way, right? It, because when we write scholarship, we ask ourselves, how might someone build on this scholarship? Or what questions might this lead to? And I love that. I love that even in a capstone studio where I tried, when I taught capstone at UTC, I tried really hard to, to impress upon the students that they're not answering all questions. They're, they're, they're inquiring about something, which will lead them to more questions. Um, and that's effectively what history does too. Um, history is about, is, is a speculation of the past. It's not an understanding of the past as the past was. It is a speculation and an interpretation. It is an argument. Right. And I think, I think I would want students to, I, if it's a question that they're asking, sure, but maybe a learning outcome of a great design history course is that students can identify what a historian's argument is. Like, wh- what is their positionality? And, and that's the question, maybe, is what, maybe the questions designers should be asking of work that they look at or anything that they read is, what is the positionality of this thing? How does this thing occupy a space in a discourse? Because nothing is neutral <laughs> and nothing is fact, like as, as a neutral, natural thing. Everything is motivated by something. And students don't always know that. Students don't even recognize sometimes that history isn't truth. Right. I I think that's really important for students to understand that as a learning outcome. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... um, Oh, definitely. I think think another question that students could ask of history... I often talk about when there are inclusions, there are also exclusions. So when you enter an archive or when you read a, a book, a chronicle, which claims, even if it doesn't overtly claim... By nature of the way a chronicle is presented, it seems total, right? There is no such thing as a totality in history. There's always a surplus of past for every history. So a question students could be asking is what was left out? Or what, what is not uh, covered by this argument? And what, what, what could a, a different argument cover? Um, that's maybe, a, I think, a, a way of answering your question, too. Oh, definitely. I think yeah. that's great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the idea that history is treated like fact is something I have a I have a con, uh, you know conversation with my students the very first day of class about that mm-hmm. just to try to get their heads around that. I mean, um, if you read a lot of history, you you might think that it's it's such an obvious thing to say that history is not truth or that mm-hmm. history is not the past that those are not synonymous things. But it, it is the I think that's a great place to start a history course. Um, just like we speculate on the future as designers, like designers love to think about the possibilities of the future. That's kind of what we're doing when we write history. We right. have some facts, we have some evidence to draw conclusions on, but there's so much interpretation. And because history lives in language, there's so much um, that happens there at the level of language too, Right. that creates a kind of uh, illusion of singularity or illusion that everything tidally moves along a path, when really that isn't true. That's, that's mm-hmm. part of the mm-hmm. argument aspect of history. I know Manny wants to ask you about writing in particular in a certain article, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, not to get uh, too deep on on that on this discussion about um, the truths in writing, how, do you find yourself like not questioning, but when you are writing an article mm-hmm. uh, like the one that you wrote for AIJI and Design, and we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, are how, how do you 
pay attention to those things you're talking about and not find yourself in that in that same path? Well, I, that's a really good question, um, and I think it I think it does have to do a little bit with the way we write. Um, I think one. I mean, this is common in academic writing. It, it's even common in an op-ed that you have to state your position. You have to state your position and signpost it, argue it. Um, and because you're, you're, you're sort of stating a position, that means you're, you're not going to tell a comprehensive. You're, gonna, you're not going to be able to cover every possible point. You're going to cover this point. And, 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 and that opens the door for other people to cover different points. If that, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, I never approach anything I'm writing as, as if it's total truth, as if it's a total anything. Um, it, I, I'm just making an argument about something. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really fundamental, though, because if you read if you read certain histories, a lot of the histories that graphic designers have inherited, the kind of legacy we've inherited is the the domain of knowledge of history. It does read like fact. It does read like this is how it was. This is a, a, a record of how it was. But there's no such thing as like how it was. There's no external thing that we like insert ourselves into. And I think that's also a very patriarchal concept. It's a very Western concept, even that there's this external thing called reality or this right. external thing called the past that has boundaries. There's no such thing as having enough past or having enough, having all of it. Um, there's no comprehensive history. Um, and, and, and decolonial thought, by contrast, would say that worlds constitute reality. So if we want to write a women's graphic design history, then maybe we start by understanding that that's a totally different world because it's constituted by a different reality, or the reality is constituted by a different embodiment, rather. Um, and I think we'll get into that more in a second. But um, right, right. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of like the underpinning philosophy of history that I think bears on how we write history. It bears on the assumptions embedded in history. And um, I don't know how many graphic design like overview histories have really dug into that. Yeah. I don't think many. Yeah. 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 But- if any, I have I have two overview histories that I'm interested in more than others. If if no, I tell offer. us, yeah, sure. Um, I think Johanna Drucker and Emily McVarish's history is a really strong one. It's a critical history. It is called Graphic Design History: A Critical Guide because it's responding to like the extant canon. It's responding to the the like domain that exists, but like unpacks it and exposes it ideologically. I think that's really important. I think that's really right. strong. I also really love Meredith Davis's graphic design theory, which some may not even recognize as a history book, but it certainly is. It's a history of ideas. And I'm really driven toward history of ideas rather than a history of forms. Like I'm not so much, I think form is important. I don't, I love form, (laughs) but I don't believe that that's the door we walk through in order to gain historical understanding. I think we have to walk through a social door or a conceptual door or the links between those things. And then form follows that. That's the way I think about my practice. It's the way I think about scholarship. It's certainly how I think about history. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah. I've read both of those books and um, have enjoyed them myself. Yeah, um, I love her I, chapters I, on modernism and postmodernism. I think they're, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, Davis's chapters on, right. on those two things. Yeah. Right. 
So um, we've kind of skirted around this a little bit, so I'm just going to jump in with this one. You recently wrote an article for AIGA Ion Design, which I read and loved. Um, <laughs> can we can we teach graphic design history without the cult of hero worship? When I read that, I was like, Pete, we have got to get Aggie on this podcast. <laughs> yes, and um, I I completely agreed. I'm like, oh my gosh, definitely. Oh, thanks. You know, in yeah. that article, and I want to I want to stress to the readers: go out. And find this article and read it because I think it is very important um, in in how we should critically analyze history or how we might have been taught history and why, you know, if you were taught in a more traditional canonical westernized manner, um, you should continue to inform yourself. Um, But I digress. Basically, what I want to ask about this is, um, you know, we are engaging in this project Mm -hmm. where we are trying to promote women in graphic design history. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice for us on how to manage um, a more holistic approach like you're suggesting with your article while still acknowledging and recognizing female designers and their contributions? Yeah, that's thank you for asking me. Uh, for my advice. I'm humbled by that because I respect your scholarship and research and know that you've, you've steeped in this. So you've been thinking about this quite a lot, but I do, I do have some thoughts about that because on, on a one level, if we say we shouldn't um, privilege individuals, how then do we talk about individuals that may have been excluded? Right. There's a, there's a question there. Um, And I think that's a valid question. So I have a few thoughts about that. Uh, First, I think there's more than one way to think about inclusivity Representation is very important, of course. Histories have a way of creating a sense of heritage and belonging, which is why that can't be ignored. And that's why it's important to have inclusive histories. But representation is only part of what makes history inclusive because representation is about the content of history. There's also the methods of history, the way history is constructed. And those are patriarchal. And even if we include one million women, but we still use a patriarchal structure, there's a limit to what we're overturning. As Audre Lorde said, uh, we would be just using the master's tools instead of dismantling the master's house. So uh, I'm interested in how, um, yes, I think inclusivity is important from a representation point of view, yes. But I also think we have to ask different questions. And I also think we have to evaluate our value systems. And um, I'm gonna gonna touch on, like historically scholars who have talked about this. Mandy, I know you love Martha Scottford's essay, Messy, Messy History Versus Neat History. It came up uh, in the CTAC panel we shared, I think. But um, in that article, Scottford identifies historiographical biases. And she builds on the scholarship of another person named Cheryl Buckley, who is very important to this discourse. Cheryl Buckley wrote about feminist historiography within broader design fields. But in that article that Scottford wrote in 1994, Messy History Versus Neat History, it's published in Visible Language, she identified the ways that Um, common assumptions in graphic design history, um, privileged white men. Through things like defining the field professionally as a profession and not as a a broader discourse. Through things like privileging national clients. um, Through things things that really only certain people had access to for most of history. So that's one way that history as a structure is biased. But there are other ways too. some question the structure of chronology. For example, I'm one of them. I'm definitely uh, critical of chronology because it creates a kind of um, a singular highway to the future, which is not how anything happens. It's, um, it privileges the, the dominant voice in its singularity. 
And, and I'm also against hero-centrism for that reason. I also should say I'm not against people having heroes. I'm not right. against like people admiring other designers. I just don't think that's the way we should teach history because we don't arrive at historical understanding that way. Um, if we, and I'm not the first person to ever think about this. Uh, Bridget Wilkins wrote about it in 1992. Nietzsche wrote about it in the late 1800s. Um, when we create monuments, when we exalt monuments, which are individual geniuses, what we ignore is the context through which that genius, the opportunities that that genius um, had, um, and potentially the privilege that that person had. Um, we would have to overlook so many contextual differences between ourselves and our heroes in the past that we miss the essential point of history, which is how context determines and conditions design objects. So um, that's why I'm against that as the, the method for teaching history. I mean, I love Herbert Motter's work and I've studied it, but when I look at a traditional history or a conventional history that, that exalts Herbert Motter, I don't necessarily learn how Herbert Motter took advantage of his time and place, how he responded to the conditions that allowed his work to become what it became. Um, and I think that's important for students to know. Um, so I guess to, that's my, my thinking is if we add more individual geniuses to an extant canon, that, that's one way of thinking about it, but it doesn't get... It doesn't get at the legacy systems that maintain patriarchal knowledge, if that makes sense. I think we need to assess mm -hmm. historical methods in addition to the content of history. That's mm. great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm just sitting here beside myself thinking and processing all it of that. Really <laughs> gets all those like thoughts going. Yeah. Well, I in, think in fact I, it just makes me think I'm sorry. It makes oh, me think. Go ahead. You know, the thing is, is like, obviously, I've read messy history versus neat history. But I think that sometimes you're ready for certain things to mm -hmm. come out of that. Like, I think it's sure. time for me to reread it. And reassess I've read it, it like 16 times. Yeah. Because every time I read it, I'm like, oh, man, that. Oh, it right. was just such a brilliant article. Um, and, and Scottford and Buckley uh, are, I think, pioneer women in terms mm -hmm. of scholarship. Right. But they, uh, I mean, the, the, just the question of like, what do we include in history? What do we value as design? What are the boundaries we put on this field? That can create exclusions. So it isn't that necessarily that the first design historians of, of graphic design sat down like, who can I include today and who can I not? But the things that they chose to include, the things that they chose to value, yeah. had a bias, had, a, had a, a certain way of privileging some people over others. That women, women have been part of um, collectives, for example, and individual heroism omits that contribution right. to the field. So right. women have been part of collaborations. They've worked in partnerships with, with men. And if they were married to that man, historically, their identities would have been subsumed under him. So their contributions are then left out or uh, overlooked. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're seeing, I think we're seeing that right now in the way Marie Neurath's scholarship is becoming clear that she was a driving force behind, um, behind isotype. And she worked for like 20 some years after her husband died, but everyone still just talked about Otto Neurath. Right. She did so much work after him. And while that's an individual, you know, um, I, I think that her behind that story is a historiographical error. Right. And that, mm -hmm. the whole story of all of the, the people who worked on that too is just, yeah. Yeah. Design is never that individual. History. I mean, it never right. has been. Um, so, so that's part of it. It's also that women uh, have um, worked in a different scopes and in on different scales. Women maybe have worked in, in domestic levels or on local levels. And that's also true about uh, cultures that aren't 
uh, Eurocentric cultures. Likewise, it's the same kind of bias. If we focus, if we focus uh, our histories on Eurocentric tastes and Eurocentric value systems, then we miss all of these opportunities to include visual communication in localized contexts all over the world. And those things, even, I guess I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but those, those kinds of approaches to world history have brought, have brought like non-Western, I'm using these binary mm -hmm, terms mm -hmm. for, for the ease of communication. And I think they're problematic terms, but non-Western design has been brought into a Western design paradigm. It's been like, oh, let's include non-Western design, but we're going to talk about it like it's Western design. So you have to evaluate things on their own terms. You have to evaluate right. things on the, within the cultural paradigm that they respond to. That's why it's so important for audiences to be part of design history. That's why it's so important for like the receipt or the impact of a work to be included mm -hmm. in design history. So when you think about when you think about that, when you think about the kind of limits of the field and the value system through which objects are um, assessed, then that's when you start getting into the patriarchy, right? It isn't just in what, what is included, but also in the, the value system that decides what is included and how it is discussed. Right. Yeah. So you've um, so you've been talking about gender disparity in graphic design, and it's obvious that um, as you're saying. It's historically in in our history. It's still there today. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in in different extents, right? We see a lot more success um, with women in graphic design today. Mm -hmm. um, some of those roles are changing, but even as those roles are changing, it's still not the same. Yeah, you know? it's yeah. it's still quite different. So even. Um, we have here in our notes to talk a little bit about Women Can't Paint by uh, Helen Gorill, <laughs> if I'm saying her name correctly. And it and it talks about gender disparity, not only um, that it still exists uh, in art and design, but there's even this glass ceiling. So even going back to that, um, even though more women are getting executive roles, creative director roles, entrepreneurial roles in design, it's still, mm -hmm. there's still some disparity there. Yeah, I think it's a parallel to what I've been saying about the structures of history. There's also the structures of our world order here. Um, gender disparity in graphic design, um, historically, okay, I'm going I'm to start by talking about it historically and then I'm going sure, to try to turn sure. it to, 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 to contemporary life. So um, embedded in a question about whether there is gender disparity in graphic design history is also what is graphic design. If we define it as a profession only, which many historians have done, again, because that was their sort of motivation, right, was to, to carve a space for this profession. Yeah. And really quick, it, I interject. I like you how in the beginning of the podcast you talked about graphic design and, and like what is the right term, visual communication, mm -hmm. graphic design. And mm -hmm. uh, I've I felt this for a few years that we're in kind of this awkward mode where it's <laughs> yeah. design, you know. Yeah. Even AIJ is now the professional organization for design. Right. So, yeah. Design... But but making buildings and making products is different than making communication. I still I still Correct. think that there are yeah. enough differences that it's worth talking about specific right. disciplines. But I don't know if the obsession with the limits on graphic design is always productive. Because visual communication is a like everybody does it. And some of the most interesting things that exist and have had an impact on society have not been made by professionals at all. Um, but I guess my, 
that's kind of the, the the point I'm making is that if we if we define graphic design historically as the history of a profession, then most certainly we will have a disparity because women did not have access to training or to professional positions for most of history. Neither did people of color. Um, so we're making a history of white men inherently if we do that. However, you know, visual communication is much broader. It encompasses more activities. Um, and if you, we start thinking about it that way, then we're probably going to see the inclusion of more kinds of people. But that's harder to quantify. It's harder to find. It's harder to study. Um, but I do, I do think women have always been active in visual communication, but they have mm -hmm. not always been professional graphic designers. In the 80s and 90s is when the, I think the field flipped from being male-dominated to female-dominated. That was a while ago. That was a while ago. Mm -hmm. And right. I, think, I think the AIGA census, and I, I recognize that there's a limit to how many people participate in that, but it's still like 60, over 60% 60 of the profession are women. Right. But if you look at the salaries, men make most of the money. Most right. of the salaries that are six figures and up are men. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? And, if most and even of the those higher women, positions. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So women are still, um, you know, not always in leadership positions. I mean, I'm, I don't believe that, I don't, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to believe that in the year 2018, I was the first female leader of the academic unit at my last school. But at the same time, I'm like not surprised at that. Um, it's just one of those things that's like, of course, but also why, how? Right. Um, yeah. So, so, and part of that is because of the, the world we're in. I mean, women occupy a different world than men do. We have different embodiments that mean that we're treated differently our whole lives. We have to make decisions between whether we will have a family or not. I mean, I don't know how many men go, should I have a career or a baby? Right. I don't right. know many men that like worry about that at all. Um, right. Maybe it's because their bodies aren't limited to a timeline there. I don't know, but I don't think it's just that. It's very complex, right? So, so it's also a situation where... Um, I think this is a, a slightly treacherous thing to say. I'm going to say it anyway. I think women are oriented towards leadership differently than men are. And that's because of conditioning, uh, cultural conditioning. But patriarchal styles of leadership, that's not how I would want to lead as a woman. Yeah. I mean, I think and this, this goes back to, um, if we want to make, connect this to design again, Sheila Levrant de Brettville outlines a really um, clear feminist process and a very clear armature for conceptual or feminist thinking um, with respect to practice, but I think it also applies to leadership. It also applies to history. Patriarchal thinking is individualized and competitive, whereas feminist thinking is shared and collective. And leadership can be shared and collective and bottom-up and about listening. That's not the patriarchal way. Right. So we're seeing a world where women are rising into leadership positions and finding themselves in a paradigm that is shaped by patriarchy. It's difficult to overcome those things, even if you are embodied. Right? It's the same. Mm -hmm. It's the same. Pro it's the same issues that. It's not the same issues, but it's related, I think, to why diversity and inclusion isn't just as simple as having having more people of color on your faculty. You have to like transform your institution. You have to transform yeah. the culture, um, because patriarchy is more than just who's at the table. It's how that table got there. It's how that table's built. Um, if that makes sense, maybe that's a bad metaphor. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I'm maybe digressing. Um, I have not read the, the women who can't paint text, but I, I did research like the synopsis and it, it sounds like it's about 
like the kinds of glass ceilings in professional art making and in those sorts of the gatekeeping that they women artists run into. I imagine that there are parallels there with the design profession as well. There might be different, but they're they're definitely there. Um, it, I think we're running into this in so many different cultural conversations right now, which I think is great that this is at, at such a top top of mind in contemporary media. But um, you know, uh, um, women. Uh, what do I want to say? The world that we are part of is organized according to a certain world order, and in order to create no gender disparity, no racial, no racial inequity. Uh, that world order needs to be dismantled. Right. I guess that's mm -hmm. the put to put it to put it <laughs> concisely. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can't expect that to run the world the same way and see change. Right. Exactly. That's you know like the Einstein quote: "Can't do the same thing over and over again and expect different results." That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Even if you invite different people to the party, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that party really welcomes them or right. really values right. them. Yeah. So um, just to keep us going here, um, we're asking everyone that we're, we're interviewing this uh, because we see all of the people that we're interviewing, you know, as, as target audience, you know? Mm, sure. um, so what would you like to see um, in a film about women in graphic design or what topics, what themes, you know, any yeah. suggestions or ideas, um, or, oh, you know, thank you relevant. for asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this is very non-patriarchal for you to ask people <laughs> that. Um, I well, first, first and foremost, I think any history that is a women's history must be intersectional. Um, we can't just talk about white women. We can't just talk about upper-class white women. And I still, I still see uh, design history doing that a little bit. So um, we have to engage the ways that multiple forms of oppression create different realities for different women. So uh, to be more specific, I, you know, black women have different struggles than white women. Um, women from China have different struggles than women from France. Women, um, just you know, to offer two different worldviews there. Poor women have different struggles than, than middle-class women. Um, trans women will have different worlds. Uh, women with disabilities have different life experiences. And all of those things really should be part of a full scope of women's perspectives on this field. There's no such thing as a, as a, a woman's experience, right? It's, um, we have to become comfortable with the, this uh, pluriversal way of thinking about the world. And see, I, even just the world, it's worlds, right, that we're talking about um, with respect to history. And even history's intersections with this particular field of knowledge, graphic design, um, different people bring different things to the table. So to be really inclusive, we have to be intersectional. Right. Um, I guess I guess I would just go back. I guess we've said this a lot, but to go back to um, historiographical method, in addition to the representation, I don't I don't know if it's enough to to write a women's history and say here are women in the same kind of history, or um, any any form of inclusivity needs to address um, what what are the biases? What are how is history constructed in a way that excludes uh, some and and not others? So um, it, maybe it's worth looking at Scottford again or De Bretville again, but asking, like, if we broaden the scope of what we accept as graphic design, who, who, is, now, who is now involved, um, who is now making graphic design, and who brings values to the canon that don't, um, haven't been there before. 
or maybe it, mm-hmm. maybe there's no such thing as a canon anymore. I don't know. Right. But don't um, know. you know, a, a feminist process is one that talks. I think it's one that I'm trying to draw on the Brettville here for a second, but one that talks about one that engages the reader in questions instead of offering all answers. Right? Patriarchy mm-hmm. claims to know all. But maybe we maybe we uh, offer questions, and and that's something that you just said a little bit ago, Pete, about teaching, right? Maybe we offer yeah. questions. And, and uh, I'm sorry, just a couple more thoughts. Oh, you're on fine. That. Yeah, um, please. I, I, feminist design involves the reader's input too, right? It even if it's just a poster, even if it seems like a an object that's passive, it requires the experience and background of the people involved. So uh, that's a really interesting thing to think about in making a. A documentary, right? Is and you're, maybe you're even doing that right now by inviting uh, people to offer their um, their opinions about it ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, I wonder if it just if it's a documentary that could just ask questions in addition to ma- making an argument. Right. And then, you know, I also think we have to. I think we have to acknowledge like that women have different world worlds than men, um, and different women have different worlds. But I'd love to, sure, I'd love to know who like awesome women designers are and what their awesome work looks like. But I also want to know how, what choices they made and did they have to make a decision between their families and their careers? What support systems did they have? Um, what are their stories? Like how, what, right. are, mm-hmm. what is right. their, what are their challenges that are different than men's, you know? Well, even my observation, um, you know, over a, amount of time, not just in these discussions in the podcast and the research for the film. Um, but I have noticed like, boy, a lot of these, uh, prominent women in graphic design, whether they're running their own business or, you know, creative directors or leaders in the industry, leading faculty, leading researchers, I'm like, not many of them have children. They just kind of have mm-hmm. dogs they carry around with them and they're little yeah, dogs so point, they can one travel. Of them. Yeah. yeah. I, I definitely, we, we did not have children. So yeah. I don't, I still don't know how I can do that. And, and even um, the number of them I'd that like are, to, that are married. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I'm like, boy, is that what they, they've chosen that to, yeah. you know, the things they choose to let go, you know, big air right. quotes there yeah. versus I, I think it also has to do with, um, for me, I don't think it was, it's not just, um, that I'm a woman. I think there's a lot of factors for, for in our in our lives, mm-hmm. um, my husband and my life. But um, people who have children often have support systems because we don't live in a society that really like rewards parenting. <laughs> we true, don't. True. We don't. Um, so you have to have like families nearby or people to help you. Nobody does anything mm-hmm. alone in this world. So, and that's part of why I take such an issue with uh, these histories that present figures as these autonomous change agents because there's no such thing, right? As total yeah, autonomy. It, and, right. and from the male's perspective, you know, as I, as I'm having this query and looking, it it is confusing to me. It's like, gosh, you know, it's it's so. I find it very interesting. Obviously, I'm I'm in, intrigued and want to know more and want to tell the story. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I had I I tried to think if the role was reversed. I'm like, I don't know if I would be able to make mm-hmm. the sacrifices just to do the career because what's expected of me, like you say, the, the patriarchal expectation, it's just, it's mm-hmm. cool. Well, it, it's structural in so many ways. I mean, a lot, I went to school with mostly women and my students are mostly women. And as I look back now, um, 
on undergrad, a lot of the best designers in my class were women and they mm -hmm. never be, yeah. they didn't pursue careers. Eventually they stayed home with their kids and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a choice, but it is a choice and right. it's not a choice that men usually have to deal with. And right. you also have a certain amount of time. I mean, you're, you're emerging, your, your emerging career corresponds with your, uh, the years where you can have a baby. So mm -hmm. that's also challenging. And if you're from a different class, if you, if you aren't from a wealthy class and that makes it harder, um, there's a million reasons that women make the decisions they do. And there's also women who do stay home with their kids and still make design, but it's just in a different world that isn't valued, um, right. in discourse. So right. uh, there's a lot that we, we could speak. We could talk we about, could talk about yeah. this. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, what it's kind a of, deep well. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. And and we're we're treading deep into that well, but we're also treading carefully in that well as well. Sure. Hey, sure. that well as well. Look what I did there. <laughs> uh, what about issues, problems, concerns? Uh, as we dig into some of these issues, mm. could well, there's always controversy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... Um, that's a good question. Gosh, I feel like we've t maybe talked about this. A little, I think we've a little kind bit of already. skirted around it. Yeah. Yeah. Some some of um some of the potential problems. I could be way wrong here. Uh, <laughs> that um you're going to run into potential problems because if you're really trying to dismantle patriarchy, that's super hard to do. Um, and it's gonna you're gonna enter territory that hasn't already been vetted by some like institutional system. Sometimes some logic that is about how fields of knowledge work, you'll probably run into that. Um, if you're trying to do something radically different, everyone's like, well, that's too different, you know? So that you'll run into that probably, I would imagine. But I also think, you know, any, any historian of graphic design, especially those who are doing original research, run into the issue of ephemerality. So um, design is not permanent. Graphic design, I mean, is not permanent. It's not culturally valued in the same way that architecture, fine art, or even product design is. So you, you sometimes can't find primary sources to study. And thankfully, we have so many more archives than existed even 20 years ago, people that are collecting the stuff and preserving it. But if you're in, entering new territory with the kinds of design you're talking about, you might find it hard to find those things because graphic design doesn't always survive its usage. Mm -hmm. um, right. So that's a really interesting problem for historians. It is. Yeah, we want to go definitely go back as far as we can in history to kind of unearth some of the gender disparity from the beginning. But mm -hmm. like you're saying, if that stuff hasn't been collected and it doesn't yeah. have permanence, how do we get the stories behind it? That's right. It's really yeah. hard. And that's part of what makes archives um, also, I think, an interesting thing to discuss. And in, if you're teaching history, it's, I think, worth talking about with students that archives are not these neutral places. They're not... They're not um, they're not always even organized according to a plan ahead of time. Like archives are often the product of donations, private donations, which means that collections build organically according to some, someone's vested interests. So the things that end up in an archive aren't always, you know, they're not always just there because they're important. They're not always there because they're culturally like significant scholarship. They might've just been somebody's interest once. And, but I think there's great archive. Like I think the letter form archive is amazing. I really love yes. seeing what they're doing. Yes. And, they write awesome stuff on their website. I love their articles. I mean, gee, it's it's the website for an archive, but I think it's some of the most interesting history that's being right. published right now. So, um, yeah, you're gonna. I think you're gonna run into uh, challenges there, and you might. Um, I think once you start trying to define fe anything, 
<laughs> and graphic design is so prone to existential crises and is always questioned what, what it should be defined as and what, what it should be called. And I'm super bored with those questions, but I recognize how hard it would be to be like, well, should I include this? Because it's kind of different than graphic design, uh, but it seems like it communicates visually. I can see those just determining the scope of study, A, in order to just be manageable. Yeah. Because you can't talk, talk about everything that's ever been made. And B, uh, to, to make sure that you're responsible to what your scholarship will do in the world. Right. That gets really challenging. That's, that's, it a, is. that's a real it is. Yeah. thing. And on top of all that, you know, women just have different trajectories than men historically. And how do you, how do you confront that in what you're saying? How do you bring that into what you're saying? Right. Yeah, I, I think this is a really exciting project. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's cool that you guys are doing this. Especially now that um, there's so much discussion in the world about um, systemic inequity. You know, it's right. people perhaps more than ever are receptive to this, are will, willing to hear, willing, willing to learn. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I just have one last question for you. Um, okay. I, I just want to hear maybe a little bit more about your own research. Um, and you can tell us about anything, really. It can tie into this project. It doesn't have yeah. to tie into this project. But, you know, we would especially want to hear if you have something that really does tie into the project. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I, um, I'm sort of starting a new chapter here in St. Louis. And uh, in terms of my creative practice, like my studio practice, I think I'm about to experience a pretty big shift. I'm not sure what that is. I, I have been in administration for two years and haven't been making as much as I uh, I'm excited to start making again. I'll be totally vulnerable for a second and tell you my uh, challenge there, yeah. which is that the things that I'm reading about and writing about are increasingly um, putting me in, like I love form and I love to make form, but I'm struggling to make those forms matter right now. I'm struggling with that. And I don't know how many other people struggle mm -hmm. with that. But once you start engaging in like social justice discourse and critical histories and like things, does this matter? Asking questions like that. Yeah. I think form is beautiful and interesting, but are those the, is that what I want to do right now? I don't know. I don't know how to bring them together. Maybe they're separate practices. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I do love to, I, I love like investigating materials and things like that and developing procedures and making image making. And that is a form of knowledge, and it's valid. Some of my favorite designers do that. Keetra Dean yeah. Dixon does that. Martin Vineski does that. But I'm also really engaged in these conversations about design futures and the kind of like world that is more just for more people and how history is a part of that. And, and I'm really engaged with that right now. I have a, I have a number of things I'm writing, um, sm smaller essays, and I'm hoping that adds up to a larger written project at some point. But um, I'm, I'm new to writing. I've only been doing it a couple of years. And I'm very humbled by it. And it takes me forever to write something. <laughs> it's so much harder than making. Uh, and, and it is a form of making. But um, I'm interested in my, my writing uh, in challenging common assumptions about graphic design history. I'm really thankful for this opportunity to talk about my ideas with you and um, a lot of what I'm working on, it I kind of talked about today. Um, I did just write an article that will be published in a couple of weeks about the IMMN placard used during the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers strike. I've been fascinated by this object for a while. I talked about it in my paper presentation on the panel we shared, Mandy, that was ages ago. But um, 
I've been thinking about this object as, as a piece of visual communication that was not made by a professional. It was made by, in fact, a jobbing printer and union leaders um, who had a print shop in a church. Um, but it had such an impact. And it, what, it started as like a, you know, a, a rallying cry for a labor strike and became this ongoing emblem for um, racial justice. And I'm really interested in the, the life of this object. And so I, I wrote a, a brief history of it, um, starting with social context, yeah. secondary, talking about the form itself and comparing it to other forms. And then ending with a kind of discussion about how this object goes on, how it continues to be in the world. Can and that, you tell us? I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. it's okay. I was just well, going to say, can you tell us where this I think is going to be it's published? It's going to be published or? at AIGA, DEC. Okay. They're beyond the Bauhaus series. I'll definitely like broadcast it when it's out. But um, yeah, um, it's a. It was my attempt at trying to write the kind of history I want to read. But I'm very humbled by that because it's. I'm not training. I have not trained as a historian. I mean, so. I'm also working on a, a book chapter about feminist process and anti-capitalist protest movements. Ooh. I have no idea what I'm going to say yet. I'm still researching, but I'm very interested in the ways uh, design history conversations could, again, move away from like the formal outcome and more about the, the pro process of doing something, the line of thought that led to something. And I'm just uh, researching that now. So I'll, I'll be writing that in the next month. Um, I'm also uh, working on an article about history as a redirective practice, which should support design as a redirective practice, meaning um, how do we uh, reroute design in order to work toward sustainable human futures? And that's a big challenge. That's a, th there's a lot of like philosophy behind it, but um, there's some scholars I'm really interested in, Tony Fry, and um, I think Arturo Escobar has a lot to say about design in the Pluriverse, that's his book. Um, I'm really interested in that and how that might inform what history looks like and how we practice design. So I'm working on an article about that too. Great. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah. I, I, I hope in the future to study, I'm trying to study a little bit more the links between the way history is written and the way we refer to history. I, I find that there is a lot of opportunity there, but not a lot of precedent. Mm -hmm. So if you guys run into referential practices that you think are just like, oh, this is so brilliant. I would love to talk about it with you. Wonderful. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. I, you have fascinated me today. <laughs> you, you have. You have. And I think this is the quietest I've ever been hosting a podcast. <laughs> uh, it was just fascinating. Just remarkable. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate the time to talk to you guys. Yeah. So, so much in-depth thought and research and things going on that you're working on. It was just... Uh, astonishing. I, I just can't say that enough. Uh, before we wrap up, I always want to uh, ask our guests words of wisdom to the listeners. Now, the listeners are students. Oh they're professionals. They're educators. So with mm. all of the fascination of today's conversation, words of wisdom to leave us with. Oh, ask why. That's I a think. great one. Yeah, I had. That, that sums I it up. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think ask why. That sums yeah. it up. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you guys. This was a delight. Thank you. I really you. appreciate it. Thank you. It was so much fun. And yeah. I look forward to what you make and the stories you tell and um, listening to more guests on the show. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. It was great having you on the podcast and I hope you have a, a great afternoon. 
And Thanks, you too. We hope to get you back on the podcast again soon to kind of talk about where things have gone and what's new. Yeah, yeah, I'd be delighted. Thank Wonderful. You. Thanks so much. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found at designdeducts.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-D-E-D-U-X.com where you can listen to the podcast or watch the video version of the podcast, as well as find links to the guests and the topics discussed during each episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found on most podcast listening platforms. You can join us on social media through Instagram and Twitter via at design underscore deducts on Facebook as Design Deducts Podcast and join us on YouTube at Design Deducts for video versions of each episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash design underscore deducts. Once again, thanks for joining us and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.